Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here, and uh, it's like a yoga class. <laughs> People twist it up into all kinds of shapes. <laughs> so um, maybe we can just begin by being quiet together. So if you want to just let your eyes close. <coughs> and um, Feel the support of your chair or cushion or floor. Bring awareness to the tongue and mouth, the whole scope of the mouth, and just let the tongue be empty of thinking. to the breath. The movement of inhaling and exhaling. And one of the best ways of settling the mind is through feeling. So when you inhale, feeling that there's inhaling, and as you exhale, feel the exhale. To be aware if there are any strong preconceptions about being here, or residue from the ritual of getting here. just feel that there is inhaling and exhaling. The breath does all the work. You don't have to do anything special. As you feel the movements of the breath, also let the ears remain open. So 
that you're not leaving the room. Simply noticing sound. And like the breath, like thoughts, sounds are just arising and passing away. Contingent phenomena. Now have a deep inhale and a long exhale, and then you can allow the eyes to open. It's nice for humans to be quiet together. So Theodore asked me to speak on the topic of freedom and discipline, and the title we came up with was The Freedom to Be Nobody, which is actually an interpretation of a lesser-known passage by a Zen teacher uh, from the Chan tradition named Lin Chi, who has a term that I love, which is the the true person of no status. The true person of no status. Which I'm reinterpreting as the freedom to be nobody. And so what I'd like to talk about tonight is what it means to be a somebody and what it means to be a nobody. And the relationship between uh, the freedom that's promised in the traditions of yoga and Buddhism um, and why we need to practice. And of course, many uh, well-known practitioners from the past have asked this question too, which is, um, if we're already whole, and if everything is already interconnected, as the mystics tell us, and as scientists tell us, uh, as ecologists tell us, everything is already interconnected, everything is already united, and you're already whole, so then why do you have to practice? What is there to practice? Sometimes we even say the word spiritual practice, and the mind is filled up with an idea of spiritual or um, supernatural being something that as of right now is hidden. So to be on a spiritual path means you're taking steps towards an awakening or towards enlightenment or towards a place or a realization that right now is obscured somehow. And what I'd like to speak about tonight is how one of the core teachings of the Buddha 
one of the core teachings of great yogis like Patanjali is that nothing is hidden. There's nowhere to get to, and in fact, all of our striving leads us further and further astray. And so I hope as I speak that all I'm doing really is offering you some words of encouragement for whatever path that you're on, if you can describe your practice in terms of a path. But keep in mind, too, as I speak, that there's nothing you can gain or accumulate. And maybe it's good to just remember that as I'm speaking, there is a way that uh, we can listen where we're just taking in words intellectually. And so as you're listening, try and listen from your heart rather than from the intellect. So we're not just accumulating more information. We're not living at a time where we need more philosophy. Uh, We're not living at a time where we need a new ideology. Um, So see if there's a way where you can listen with flexibility without so much knowing, not from the knowing mind. Is Is this possible, do you think? Like even as we sit here right now, And you let the ears open to this experience of sound, whether it's my voice or fan, the distant hum outside, shuffling in here. Is it possible to listen to these sounds without knowing? commentary oh I know this technique I'm really good at this technique this is the not knowing technique <laughs> it's like as soon as we hear the sound oh that's fan air conditioner air move it it's hot in here you know and as soon as we label something, We like or we dislike what we label. And then through those preferences, memory comes in. And then there's no kind of fresh meeting with what's happening in present experience. Because whatever is happening is being filtered through all of my ideas that are associated to the labels that I put on everything. At the beginning of the Rig Veda, there's... Uh, an unknown narrator who has this wonderful passage where he says I do not know just who or what I am I wander about concealed and wrapped in thought I don't even know who I am because everything I think about who I am is just who I think I am which is all based on memory And so there's a relationship between the habit energy of constant knowing and constant thinking and constant conclusions and freedom. There's no freedom when we go into the world, as Dogen says, and try and confirm everything. 
there's a kind of constriction that occurs as we know more and more about more and more. So Lin Chi, who, who came up with this term, um, the true person of no status, um, has this lovely passage here that he calls um, the secret of the matter. If you want to be free to be born or die, to go or stay, as one would put on or take off a garment, then you must understand right now that the person here listening to this talk has no form, no characteristics, no root, no beginning, no place she abides, yet she is vibrantly alive. But that's not the case for most of us, right? If someone takes your seat, that's my seat. I know my place. I know who I am. And yet the more we know who we are, we're haunted by a sense of emptiness, of, of something missing. That whenever we're filtering our experience through a me, we create a separation from how things actually are. And that separation is called in Buddhist terminology, dukkha, which is usually translated as suffering or stress or unsatisfaction. My current favorite translation is lack, dukkha as a, as a sense of lack, that there is something missing, there is something I lack. And what we do when we feel a sense of lack or a sense of separateness is that we try and overcome the lack by filling it up. And so whenever we feel this lack, we try and fill it up with something. And the first way we try and fill up the lack is to establish a sense of me. And then we become the central figure around which the whole world pivots. But that only deepens our feeling of lack. It only increases the dukkha. It increases the suffering. Because I'm the central character. But when we slow down and start to pay attention, you know, as we listen to sound in here, as you watch movements of the breath, feeling sensations arising and passing away in the body, thoughts coming and going through what we call the mind. We notice that these phenomena are not just impermanent, but that they don't refer back to a sense of me. That nothing that's noticed refers back to an I. These sounds are just arising and passing away. I don't make those sounds come and go. Anyone who has a meditation practice knows that it only takes a little bit of sitting to start to realize that thoughts also just arise and pass away. Sometimes I like to contemplate how many thoughts I've had in a day. Has anybody ever considered this? 
Or is it just people who sit around all day thinking about how many thoughts they have? <laughs> how many thoughts have you had today? Anybody? How many sensations have you had in your body? Is anyone counting? How many feelings have you felt? So, all of these phenomena, all these dharmas, arise and pass away in awareness, constantly coming and going. We don't know where they come from, and we don't know where they go. All those thoughts that have passed through the mind today, I don't know where they've gone to. There isn't some, like, storehouse somewhere where they all sit and turn around and then come back again. They're just conditioned phenomena arising and passing away. But what happens is, in that process of arising and passing away, the mind contracts around certain patterns of thought, holds on to them, and then gives them a sense of solidity through memory. So you hear the sound outside of a fire truck, or just you hear a sound, and then the mind says, fire truck, and then an image comes in, red, fire truck, going to a fire, and, oh, that must be down near Logan. Oh, no, I live right down near Logan. I wonder if, oh, I still hear the sound. Maybe they're stopping at my house. Should I stay? Should I go? Should be okay if my house burned down. Insurance policy is pretty good. And I don't know if I like Riverdale anymore. <laughs> wanting to move out of Riverdale. Then I'd be far from Snow Lion. Could I buy my books? I'd go to Book City. Then I could get Theodore the business. And the next thing you know, the lecture is finished. <laughs> and you've been thinking, you've been on the fire truck, you know. But the fire truck has passed away. And the sound of the fire truck doesn't refer back to you in any way. It's the sound of the fire truck. And so when we talk about awakening, we're talking about replacing, or we're talking about rather a radical shift where we're changing our center of gravity so that I am not the center of all these thoughts. We just see that the I is also a contingent phenomenon moving through awareness. And then, instead of being in the center of the personality, we're in the center of a situation. We're in, we, we, become, we arrive completely in circumstance. And then we're part of that circumstance. And then we can act spontaneously without filtering the whole experience through I, me, and mine. Even recently, you know, I, I spent some time with Tony Packer, who some of you might know, and I, I was asking her some questions about her childhood in Germany. And um, she said, well, you know, I, I don't really remember <laughs> too much. And I said, well, is that because of your age? maybe the wrong thing to say. <laughs> she said, no. She said, I, I just don't give my history very much sunlight and water. Mm -hmm. 
I just don't give those thoughts much sunlight and water. And so I said, well, then what happens when you want to tell someone, like a relative, about some of your, your experiences? And she said, when you talk about your history, you should only talk about the facts. No embellishment, no exaggeration. But for most of us, when we contemplate who am I, we move back into the past and then we think that the past is something that exists in space and time. Like when I say Michael Stone, I can conjure up uh, images of myself in the past and then I think that the past exists. But the past doesn't actually exist in the past. The past is what's happening now. The past is what the mind is doing now. Creating something called the past. So we have a thought now and we call that the past and it's like we throw it behind ourselves now and we say that was me then and it's not just that we're taking a thought and imagining that it's behind us now by doing that you create a me that you have to throw the thought behind And when I was studying psychology, I had great opportunity to study with a wonderful um, uh, psychologist named James Hillman. And he used to always um, remind us that um, whenever you ask someone about the past, all you're going to get is fiction. And case history becomes a kind of joke. And so, from the perspective of contemplative practice, when we talk about the past, what we're noticing is that the only way we can experience the past is now. And the same with the future. The future is how the mind is operating now, but then we project that into the future, which then creates a me now that's thinking about the future. Does this make sense? The past and the future are in our minds now. And most of the time, our distractions fall into the categories of past or future. Even one time the Buddha was asked, Do you believe in past lives and future lives? Which is, you know, was, was the common sense Indian perspective at the time. And the Buddha said, If you begin to think about who you were in the past or who you are in the future, 
you're establishing a you, which gives rise to dukkha, to suffering. In other words, to think too much about the past or about the future only serves to establish the illusion that I actually exist as a solid entity. As opposed to seeing how I am just a construction. In the here and now. And it's not to deny the past and say the past does not exist. This would be naive. But that the past exists in the only insofar as we're constructing it now in this experience. And this has everything to do with freedom and everything to do with discipline. Because when we're always caught in knowing everything about everything, we're caught in the past. Because everything we know about now, through our knowledge base, is memory, it's history. And it prevents a kind of fresh, it, it prevents sort of being touched by, by what is happening right now. And then compassion or service is impossible because it's a, it's a compassion in relationship to me. I am being compassionate. It's not the naturally arising openness that comes when the chitta vrittis, when the, the constant elaborations of the mind have settled. Are there any questions yet? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just had a question about what, what you were talking about in terms of not focusing on the past or the future mm. because of that creating uh, uh, a sense of self. Yeah. But what if you are attempting to look at your karma and your mm. your soul in a minute? Uh -huh. Does it not serve you to to do that? Uh huh. Whose soul? Well, this is one of the things that I'm trying to, that I, I, I'm having struggle around because yeah. I'm, in some ways, understanding the sense of no self, but in other ways, when I, my understanding of reincarnation and such uh -huh. suggests that there is a soul that uh -huh. isn't, and it's not my soul, my, my soul, but uh -huh. A soul that is reincarnated. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm struggling with that. Me too. Actually, you know, in early Buddhism, this is a really strong tension, which is um, the Buddha's challenge of the fact that there is this substance that at the time was called Atman or Jiva. And... Um, the Buddha did not teach that there's no soul or there's no self. His teaching is better translated as not self. Nothing belongs to I, me, or mine. Nothing. Not this body, not thoughts, not your bank account. 
So if we look at it through the perspective of non-attachment, we see that because everything that moves through awareness is changing, thoughts, sensations, lovers, children, the body, family, everything that we think of as most stable in our lives is actually a process that's in constant change. There's nothing Buddhist about that. If you pay attention, you can notice that. Everything is in constant motion. And we start to see that if we then start to cling to those things, to try and make them stay, to try and keep them real and make them permanent, we create a lot of suffering for ourselves and for others, a lot of dukkha. And then we start to see that none of these things belong to an I, me, or mine. That's the first way of understanding non-attachment. But then we also see that the thing we're attached to the most is not just physical things like our bicycle or apartment or neighborhood or nationality or gender. The thing that we're attached to the most is that I exist, is the sense of I, me, and mine. It's what we're most invested in, that all of your thoughts are basically a construction of this narrative that builds up a sense of me. I remind people as much as I can that 90% of our thoughts are all about me. It's depressing. (laughs) Or maybe for some people it's exciting. I remember on uh, one of my first meditation retreats having this visceral sense that all of my thinking was about me. It was so disturbing that I had never seen that so clearly that almost every thought that went through my mind I somehow turned it into a commentary, a story, and that the story was building up this sense of Michael. The paradox being that the most content moments in my life have been times where there's no me. (laughs) There's just experience unfolding without this story happening all the time. And so the Buddha is challenging this term Atman or Jiva, this sense of what you're calling soul, not saying it doesn't exist or that it does exist, but simply showing us how when we tell the story that there is something in me that is permanent and ongoing, we often don't see that that's a story. And it can serve to reify the sense of me. And this is a fascinating thing to contemplate, to inquire on, to watch in our own construction of moment-to-moment experience. Really, really interesting.
actually to continue the questions with Tony Packer, the, the next thing I said to her was, well, what happens when you have a student who um, talks about their experience in terms of a soul or God or an inherent life force inside of them? And she said, um, well, that, that can be problematic because if we start with the concept of soul, then we start our inquiry with a question, I mean with an answer. We start our inquiry with an answer. Whatever we, going to f- whatever we find is going to be an aspect of soul or an aspect of God. It's an interesting way she responded because what she's taking us back to is just to stay in that place of questioning. So this question that you have, to allow that to kind of bubble so that your questions radically outnumber your answers. And then there's mindfulness. And by definition, mindfulness or present-centered attention has number one, the characteristic of an intention, the intention to be present, but number two, not a lot of commentary. So if we're noticing experience, but we have a lot of commentary, oh, this is soul, this must be the divine, this is sacred, then it's not necessarily paying attention. So the Buddha really uh, presses us to look into grammar and language to see how some of the ways that we describe reality to ourselves obscures uh, the possibility of clear seeing. Non-attachment. Not knowing. Not knowing. What does that mean to practice not knowing? Not knowing. It doesn't mean that you don't know. It means that you know that you can't know. And then you can begin inquiry. Because you know you can't know. What a relief. (laughs) This reminds me of a wonderful passage. I think I I I wrote it down, actually, but I wanted to read it tonight. Um, Did I? Oh, I did. Great. Uh, Ryokan, who's a great Zen master, he was a hermit who was a wanderer. He wandered. uh, After his awakening experience, he basically just started wandering until later in his life he had a little hut and he lived in his hut with barely anything, just a little fire, one, supposedly one pot for cooking. And... um, was very, very poor his whole life, before and after his awakening. And um, one day he was out wandering, and finally after being away for a few days, he came home, and he noticed that the latch on his door was unlocked. And he opened his door, and a thief had come, (laughs) and stolen his belongings which supposedly uh, um, consisted of a writing utensil and a pot. 
<laughs> stolen. And so he pens this poem. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. So you can try sort of a 30 second mind experiment. You come home tonight after this lecture, and your front door is open. And your belongings, which I'm sure are many, have been stolen. And you probably wouldn't notice the moon. <laughs> this practice of noticing, of listening without knowing, is so important because most of the time we're so caught in this frenzy of distraction where there's no intimacy with our rivers and with our lovers and with our community because we're we're caught up not only in all of our preferences but all of our knowing and so there's no freedom It's like when you know somebody for a long time and the more that you start to know them, the more you realize you just don't know them. Like how wonderful it would be to wake up in the morning beside your partner and look over and say, Whoa, what have I done? Who are you? And to start from that place where you don't know. But that's not what happens. They start speaking and you're already finishing their sentence. Because you're so full of knowledge. And the knowledge has no flexibility. So it actually closes the heart. It's one of the reasons why I left the academic world is It didn't seem like the knowledge had any relationship to compassion or flexibility. It seemed to produce a kind of weird... uh, There's almost a a strange relationship with expertise and the ego. And... uh, there's a maturation process that has to happen for knowledge to actually become wisdom. And it's where knowledge becomes flexible, where you can drop it. And then wisdom arises. Compassion arises. There was another hand up here. Um, I I totally agree with you that we are creating the past now, but the reverse is also true, isn't it? The past kind of shaped us to the point of evolution we're at now? Sure. It goes both ways. Yeah. And I was wondering to what extent actually asking questions doesn't obstruct us from being present and seeing things fresh and clear. Because sometimes asking the questions also focuses into 
specific directions which doesn't oh, necessarily yeah. open the mind to whatever. Sure. Well, there are ways you need to ask the questions. <laughs> and um, in, in the yoga tradition, there's a, a very strong distinction between different kinds of thinking. One is analytical thinking and the other is contemplative thinking. So analytical thinking is where you ask a question to find an answer. It's like bad therapy. You know, like you think that if you ask, how, how has something in my past given rise to this symptom? If you use analytical thinking, you can get caught in the illusion that if you can explain what the cause was in the past, it will actually make the symptom go away in the <coughs> present. And actually what tends to happen is that for years and years we, we focus on the story of the past and we think that if we just get this one more piece of it the symptom is going to go away. <laughs> but actually that kind of thinking is really good for recognizing patterns. So you look into the past and you see a pattern that's given rise to maybe some kind of habit energy that we're caught in now. But the kind of questioning I'm talking about is, is contemplative questioning, where you ask a question, but there's no need for an answer. You ask the question just in order to have fresh <coughs> inquiry. So you ask a question as a form, as a practice of contemplation, where you're not necessarily asking because you need an answer. You're asking because it helps release the momentum of memory that knows. Oh, I mean, even if I asked you, who are you? <laughs> I mean, if you, if, you, if you answer, and as soon as I say, who are you, your mind will fill up with all kinds of ideas, and it'll give rise to a feeling of dukkha. <laughs> I just ideas, ideas, ideas. But if, for example, we um, um, had an experience of sadness in the body, or, um, well, let's use sadness as an example, or pain as an example, we can, we can breathe with it and we can ask questions. Is this permanent? Is this pain that I'm experiencing now permanent, or is it changing? So we're not we're not asking that question to say yes, it is impermanent. We're asking that question to to help change the mode of thinking, to reveal the innate stability of awareness. Or we say, you know. Um, is this pain in the knee uh, mine? Is it me? Um, is this sadness me? And it, the answer is not interesting. But, but what it does to our awareness is it increases awareness. So that we can... Um, think clearly. 
I mean, I, sometimes it seems like in meditative communities we think that thinking is just bad. It's like an enemy, that we're supposed to get rid of all of our thoughts. But actually, once there's some calmness in the mind and meditative practice, we start thinking again. Thinking's great. And the, the kind of thinking we normally use is, is contemplative thinking, whether it's in the koan tradition or in the Tibetan tradition of questioning, whatever tradition you practice in, you'll probably find that once there is some stillness that we can find in the mind and body, um, we then introduce questions, forms of inquiry, to start in that calm space to look around and say, what is this? What is this? Who am I? Or maybe we should replace who am I with how am I? Or, or what is this? Or where is this? What, what is this? Because every time you ask, who am I? You're always going to get an answer. And the answer is just going to contribute to that mechanism in the mind that asks the question to get an answer. <laughs> Um, so you were saying there's no fr- freedom when you go into the world to confirm everything. And I'm thinking about that. Um, what about constantly confirming uh, the thought about who we're, who we're not and things we're letting go of and just being present and that being like a confirmation? Mm-hmm. So, so in a way... But what's being confirmed? Right, there's nothing being confirmed. Dogen says, if you go out into the world and confirm everything, this is delusion. Right. If you go deep into the world, the world confirms you, and this is awakening. Mm. Well, I think that's what I was trying to say, turning it around to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's that, you know, can you go out into the forest? Can you go to your family dinner? Can you go to your job without knowing everything? I know uh, a lot of faces in the room, and I know that there are a lot of therapists in here. And... Um, you know, I mean, this is, this is where the burnout happens and, and the exhaustion at the end of the day is when we think we can really know. You know, and, and all the prescriptions and the diagnoses and the interpretations and how much that shuts down real intimate inquiry with two people. I'd like to make a commentary. I, as for me, like the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. That's one uh-huh. thing for sure. And I'd like to rephrase my thing. With the past is like one thing I don't understand. If, if the past shaped us to where we're at on our past now, how can we consider the past to be an illusion because it makes us as a present, whether it's collective consciousness or individual? Uh-huh. What's the question? The, uh, the question is like, how can we consider that the past is an illusion if, if the past has shaped us 
to be present. The past is just a category. Mm. The past does not exist. The past is what your mind is doing now. There isn't a thing called the past. It's not there. You can't go back there. No. You can't do anything. You can't. When you exhale, mm-hmm. it's finished. It's One of my teachers, Patabi Joyce, says he calls the exhale little bit dying. <laughs> little bit dying. So you exhale, and the exhale's over. That moment is finished. That that moment is is uh, is over. One time I asked Kempo Tsultrim, how how long is a good amount of time for meditation? For doing sitting practice? Stupid questions. <laughs> how, and he said, um, just blink your eyes. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> and I mean, try this. When you blink your eyes. That moment, it's over. It's finished. You you can't go back and get what, and redo anything that happened in that last moment. And in a way, that's why mindfulness practice is a kind of mourning. It's a it's it's a really a very deep. It's a profound practice of letting go. I think a lot of us have a little bit of a philosophical or sentimental understanding of letting go. Because we, it's like we're going to let go of that, but just a little bit of this. <laughs> it's like you have your garage sale, and then as people start coming, you start putting some things back in your house. <laughs> <laughs> or you sell everything that you saw on those posters. Yeah. Hmm. And so, we, what does it mean to let go, but not replace it with anything? And to also realize that what actually needs to be renounced are not just things, but, but the way we make ourselves into a thing. The way we try and make ourselves, establish ourselves as permanent. So that then we start to see that non-attachment actually means connection. Because when I practice non-attachment, what I'm practicing non-attachment to is I'm practicing non-attachment to all of the constructions of me and mine that prevent me from engagement with reality. So... Something persists, right? Whether you call them samskara or traumas. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. And, and ultimately, so do you think the practice itself is ultimately going to heal those, or do we need therapists? Do we need Western technologies of therapy? Well, I think you're asking two questions. Okay. One is if something persists, yeah. and the other is if and we need... Well, Both contemplative this, practices. Yeah. And so does it persist even through your contemplation? Or, yeah. Well, I think it's very individual. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess I, I can only speak from what I see. 
which is that um, there are so many people who've done way too much therapy. And all of the talking and the knowing of the patterns um, can, can can become just new forms of suffering. Because there's always a low level of anxiety that you can't get rid of when you're clinging to stories of me. And um, so just because you know something doesn't presuppose that you can let it go. And so I have a lot of people who come to me in my practice who they've done too much therapy. And they're still doing all the same things. But they know about them. (laughs) You know? And the opposite is also true, which is that it seems like there are many people in uh, meditative traditions who, um, because of their, sometimes because of working with a teacher who may not understand their culture, because of uh, sometimes uh, practicing in a way that's defensive, um, they can um, really shut down um, certain aspects of themselves that the practice doesn't touch. And, um, and we see that all the time. And, um, and then there are people who do both. Um, it's always really lovely working psychotherapeutically with someone who has a meditative practice because they can stay with their experience without jumping out of it all the time. So maybe they're touching some pain and they can just stay with it without changing the subject or dissociating and looking out the window or you know, trying to explain it away. So I think it's really individual. But I definitely think that the current um, intersection of psychology and Buddhism and yoga is so enriching for everybody. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Mm-hmm. We all have some, you know, every corner has something to say. Uh, um, I, I could go on for months and months on <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Somebody else? Does anyone have a question who hasn't asked a question yet? Yeah, uh huh. When you're saying non attachment, are you talking in another way of curiosity? Yeah, I think that would be a great way of. Of, uh, I think curiosity, non-attachment, inquiry, questioning, all work together. Um, the word curiosity comes from the root cure. And a cure can't happen unless there's openness, unless there's a real, genuine, burning desire to know. And actually... Uh, One place where I see this a lot is with young people, you know, especially in their teens, where suddenly they're having these huge existential questions arising in their life. They see death around them, or whatever it is that starts to wake them up. They smoke pot, they, you know, whatever happens that actually gives them um, a sense of something greater than themselves. And then there's no place in our culture that supports questioning. We just, you know, hand them answers, you know, and that kind of shuts down this, this place in us 
that is uh, the heart of practice, this questioning. And, of course, some of you probably know the story of the Buddha's first night away from the palace. Um, He leaves his palace at Kapilavatu, and he gets into his chariot, and he's moving along the road in the back of the chariot, and he looks out the window, and he sees three things. Does anybody know what they are? Was the moon one of them? Was it a pot and a writing implement? Was which? Was it a pot and a writing implement? No. Yeah, first he sees somebody who is old, and then somebody who is sick, and then he sees a corpse. Aging, impermanence, and death. And then he turns to his charioteer, and he says... Is this going to happen to everybody? Is this going to happen to me? And his journey begins with this question. And so maybe another way of saying this is that the intensity and the depth of your questions are totally related to the intensity and the depth of your awakening. There's a great passage in the Zen tradition. Great doubt, great awakening. Little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. No doubt, no awakening. The Buddha's story, the beginning of his story, is a question. What is your question? You know, can, you, can you recall what the questions are that brought you to your interest in spiritual practice, in contemplative inquiry? Can you find those questions? Because I promise you they're still with you. They're still there. And, and so in our center, which we call center of gravity, it's not really a center. It's kind of a little garage in an alley in Parkdale. And we're trying a kind of anarchistic experiment which is how to bring together these contemplative traditions with um, from various lineages and try to use these traditions to support the spirit of inquiry to help people come back to those basic questions in their life and work with those questions. Not to provide answers, but to find those meaningful existential questions that our culture doesn't have time for. 
and to really learn how to inquire, inquire into those questions. Um, and this requires some discipline because our habits of impatience and distractedness and envy and anger and greed and jealousy and competitiveness have so much momentum that we need some techniques so that we can wake up the intelligence of the body and quiet the mind so we can find new grooves in the mind so we can think and ask questions and explore to bring some vitality back to a life that gets shut down by so much knowing and distractedness concealed and wrapped in thought but where is the moon? meanwhile the moon is there and we just don't notice the moon Or maybe we don't even notice the person closest to us. Because we've been so busy thinking about ourselves. Or thinking about them. Sometimes our conclusions about other people are just other ways of creating more stories about ourselves. Everything's an opportunity for practice. You enter the sounds of those sirens. They bring you back to present experience. Here we are. No form. No characteristics. Let's go back to Lin Chi again. If you want to be free to be born or die, to go or stay, as one would put on or take off a garment. If you want to be free, letting thoughts come and go, letting your habit energies arise and pass away. I want that cigarette, but I'm not going to go take it. And you watch that energy arise and pass away. And maybe in your lifetime, that energy never goes away. You'll still want the cigarette, but you don't actually go for it. That's what's meant here by born or die. Then you must understand right now that the person here listening to this talk has no form, no characteristic, no root, no beginning, no place she abides, yet she's vibrantly alive. Not letting your mind stick to everything that comes and goes. I've been rereading some of the Buddha's early teachings lately because I've been trying to find stories to read to my son from the Pali Canon. And um, I came across one that I had never read before. Um, the Buddha's son's name is Rahula where the Buddha catches Rahula lying he 
catches his son telling a lie. Oh, his son is seven years old. He catches his seven-year-old son lying. And then he asks his son how that feels to lie. And his son says that it feels shameful. And the Buddha says, oh good. Because if you don't feel shame telling a lie, then you're capable of much greater wrongdoing. So the shame that you feel is a kind of pointer. And then the Buddha says, so what you feel after an unwholesome action, that becomes a mirror. And that's his teaching. This becomes a mirror. And then we start to see that our actions become mirrors where we can start to see the quality of the mind. Where if you want to be a kind person, you have to plant seeds of kindness. You have to take kind actions of body, speech, and mind. If you look out into the culture and you see so much fear, is it possible for you to take action in your mind, with the body, and in speech that don't contribute more fear in our society? Or intolerance? Look around. There's so much fear and intolerance and competitiveness and anger. And then when you start to work with your capacity for anger and your potential for greed and competitiveness and fear, then suddenly your meditation practice becomes a form of social action. Because you're not contributing those seeds to the culture. When you plant in your mind the seed of anger, the teachings of not-self remind us that that isn't planted in your mind. It's planted in the mind, in the body, and in the body politic. So when you act on your anger, that's the seed you're planting in the culture. Because you are just a little corner of the culture. They're inseparable. Go down to the Don River and look at the water. You're 80% water. What are you going to do about the water? That, that water is you. In other words, non-attachment is not passivity. That when I'm not attached to all of my habits of I, me, and mine, and I'm working with those habits, then I look at the river and I want to take action. This whole practice revolves around action. So the true person of no status is a person whose discipline allows them to be free of themselves so they can serve. And that's where the freedom is.
So when you catch yourself in a moment of self-judgment, I'm sure that's not common around here, but if you catch yourself in a moment of self-judgment and you see, oh, I'm talking to myself in this way now, that moment is a moment of freedom. That moment is a moment of awakening. Because you come back again to present experience free from our fixation in our habit energies. But if we don't have discipline and formal practice, it's a bit hard to do that in everyday life. And I think a lot of us are like book Buddhists. You know, we we read books and we read about the power of now, which supposedly is not Buddhist, but we read about the power of now, and we just want to be present. And then three minutes later, we're all neurotic again. Because we really need to to have a practice. So that within that formal practice, we're learning how to work with the whole range of mind and body and emotional states. So we can start to truly know what impermanence means, what not-self is. Because if it's just philosophical, it doesn't change anything. You know, Stephen Harper made a speech today apologizing for what happened in schools. And when they interviewed people from the Native community on the CBC radio today, each person said that they didn't, uh, that, that, that his apology didn't really mean that much. One person said, oh, well, I'm aware that he's getting paid to do this job. And I was struck, but he's making an apology, and the response is mixed. Why is it mixed? Because we need to see some action. We need to see action. We, who are you? And this practice is about true self-expression. Who are you? You look at the Don River. Who are you? What are you going to do? The human world is speeding up. We don't have time for you to go to a cave and sit and meditate. There's not even a lot of caves left. We need to respond to the imbalances in our ecosystem in our economies, in our societies, social and economic imbalances. And these traditions have so much to say about how to work with these imbalances. Because you look out into the river and that's you. So you have to take action. And there is so much freedom in action. Because who's taking the action? The river is acting on the river. The river is going down to the river to help the river. 